Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. The new sermon series, the book of Luke. Uh, and real quick, uh, so this morning is, is going to be maybe a little different than the typical sermon in that uh, as we're kind of beginning a, a new series, uh, there's some things that Luke says that we kind of we've got to understand before we move forward into Luke the rest of probably the next, we'll be, let's be honest, like two years. Um, but uh, there's two books I want to recommend. If, this, if, if anything I, I say this morning kind of sparks some interest in you, uh, about why do we trust the Bible? Why can we? Tr- how can we trust the Gospels? Um, there's this uh, book by Peter Williams. Uh, Peter Williams is a, a PhD from the University of Cambridge, and he is um, the principal of Tyndale House, Cambridge, one of the world's leading institutes for Bible research. Super well-educated guy. Uh, Peter Williams, can we trust the Gospels? And so he goes into like all this deep dive of, of why we can trust the gospel, Peter Williams. And then an, another book, and, and I think Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, we can start giving these out. Okay. So this is a, a newer book by Michael Kruger. He's a professor at RTS Charlotte, um, and his specialty is, is essentially, uh, well, New Testament canon. And so he's got a book called Surviving Religion 101, and this is geared toward his daughter just went to college and he wrote it kind of as a collection of letters that he wrote to his daughter and saying, look, in college, you're going to hear a lot of really wild things about the Bible and um, about Christianity, and here are some, some things you need to know before you get there. And so this is, uh, yeah, again, if, if you have children who are about to go to college, uh, or even if this is just a wonderful apologetic for our faith, uh, Michael Kruger, Surviving Religion 101. Um, so some of the stuff we're going to talk about is coming from both of those books. But like I said, we're beginning a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And I know it seems like we just finished going through a gospel and that we just finished Matthew, what, a bit over a year ago. And so why go through another gospel yet again? Um, well, do y'all know how, you know, if you keep a vehicle for any, well, a while, at some point for that vehicle to keep running smoothly or running like it was designed to run, You've got to do some, you know, some maintenance on it. Uh, replace the water pump, change the timing belt, new spark plugs, uh, you know, whatever it may be, because over time, the wear and tear on that engine wears it out. Okay, when the same way, and I know that some of us know this more than others, but living day to day in our fallen world <laughs> requires maintenance. Uh, because of sin, we live in a world filled with broken promises. You know, full of doubts and fears and anxieties and shocking diagnoses and painful news and difficult relationships. And and we just kind of, we stumble through life, all of which can do a number on our souls. And, and, you know, really, sometimes even church, right? I mean, church is the place that's really to be kind of the eye in the center of the hurricane called life, the, the place of peace and rest. Even the church can wear us out because we get so caught up in doing the religious stuff and trying to keep up with all the other churches and all the things that they're doing and we just check the boxes that we too forget our first love. That as, as Sarah and, and the music team so beautifully reminded us this morning that you, like you can have all this world, 
like all the fancy church buildings and nice clothes and fancy things. But just give me Jesus. Like if, if all we had was Jesus, then Jesus would be enough. And, and so we're going to go through Luke because I don't know about you, but I know that my soul needs regular scheduled maintenance. That in a world full of noise, 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 to be reminded afresh of just the simple gospel message. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And in the Bible, you know, we can learn a lot about Jesus. Of course, the Old Testament all points to Jesus, right? All of it is pointing us to, to Jesus. And then Paul and all the New Testament letters expound Jesus' teaching, what he meant and what that means for us today. But, but there's only one place in the whole world. Did you know that? There's one place in the whole world that we can look to see what Jesus actually said and actually did. And it's the four historical accounts that we have of his life. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John. And so hopefully as we go through Luke over the next, well, I don't know how long it's going to take. It may take us a while. But as we go through that, we'll find the timing belt of our souls being changed and retuned and even retimed. Uh, to the true and better way. And I need that. How about you? Um, let's do that. Let's go into the thick of it, into God's inspired word to us in Luke. So Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would come and, and capture our hearts. Um, Lord, maybe our hearts are, are weary. Help us just to pay attention. Um, Lord, forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. Uh, may you use this morning uh, in a mighty way to remind us of the certainty that we have in your word. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. Again, as, as I said, this morning is going to be a little different. And so, we're, I mean, we're going to like deep dive today. And so, um, I just want to encourage y'all, stay, stay with me as much as you can. I promise I tried to keep this as, like, as user-friendly as possible. But it's tempting, right, as we start reading through the Bible, just to kind of skip over this whole intro section. Just go ahead, let's go ahead and get to action, right? Um, but we, we have to know that in the ancient world, first sentences were extremely important. They set the tone. Because if you think about it, back then, like, they didn't have books like we have today. And so let's say that you go to Turn Row Books and you're perusing the shelves and you're looking for a new book that you may like. And so you find the book on the, on the shelf and you ah, and you, you get it. And, and you notice that on the book, the jacket cover, there's usually a synopsis or some summary statement about, you know, kind of what the book's about. And so you can read it and you can have a, a good understanding for, hey, I may like this book. Okay. Well, in the ancient world, they didn't have fancy books with fancy jacket covers on them. Um, no, they just had scrolls. And, and so could you imagine then going into this big 
repository of scrolls or their version of a library, and all you have is just a bunch of scrolls. You're like, what, what am I supposed to do? What am I even looking for? And so back then, they had this very neat device that instead of having to unroll the entire scroll and be like, okay, what, what's this whole thing about? They had it to where all you had to do was just crack open the scroll just for the first sentence, just, just one little bit, read the first sentence, and that would give you an understanding of what was going on in that scroll. So if, if an ancient scroll was a movie, think of the opening sentence kind of as the trailer for the movie. You know, it, it doesn't give everything away, but it, it gives you a big picture of what, what's coming. What's, what's the scroll about? And so that's what Luke is doing for us this morning. In the Greek, just like it is in the English, if you look, verses 1 through 4 is just one long opening sentence. And Luke's letting us know what we're about to read, what this is about. And he said, listen, many people have tried to compile a narrative. There's been a lot of people really interested in this Jesus person. A lot of people have been looking into what he said and did and collecting those things and putting them into written form and so when we call a book of the Bible a gospel, you know, there's a difference between, you know, the gospel message, which is Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. By grace, he has, he has died for you and given his life for you so that you can have forgiveness. That's the gospel message. But, but a gospel um, in the Bible is a historical narrative or a historical biography even of who Jesus was and what Jesus did for his people in time and space. Which means, this isn't some fairy tale. Uh, this isn't wish fulfillment. You know, this isn't some nursery rhyme designed to help you feel better when you're having a bad day. Nor, and this is important too, nor is this an account of one person who had some like psilocybin-induced religious experience on top of a mountain somewhere, and he saw the secret of the universe, and he decided, I'm going to write this down. Uh, my trip. Now, Luke says, look, I don't know how else to say it. I, I, I'm just recording the facts as they happen. And, and by the way, I'm not the only one who, who has seen this and who has talked to these eyewitnesses. I'm not the only one. Many people have seen this. I'm just telling you what literally happened. And, and so the reason why Luke is not only the longest book in the New Testament, but, but is also the most complete gospel account, is because Luke, we know that he was a physician, but he was also kind of functioning as an investigative journalist. You know, there are things in Luke that aren't in other accounts because Luke tracked down the eyewitnesses. You know, like, like Luke went and he tracked down the people who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and he learned firsthand how their hearts burned within them as Jesus was teaching the Old Testament to them and saying how he fulfilled it. You know, it, it, it's in Luke alone that we find what, what Mary thought about when, okay, an angel comes to visit this young teen girl and saying, by the way, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have the, the Messiah. And, and so Luke tracks down Mary and, and gets what Mary was thinking when that happened during that whole nine-month period. Uh, Luke alone records that. You know, it's in Luke that uh, we hear some of Jesus' teaching that only he records, and it's some of our favorite. It's like the prodigal son and like the good Samaritan and, you know, as we, you know, you look through the Gospels, of course, Mark's Gospel is very fast-paced. It's, it's a shotgun approach. It's like, you know, Jesus did this, and then he did this, and oh, by the way, Jesus said that. Kind of all over the place. But Luke tells us that he followed things closely for some time, that he interviewed the eyewitnesses, and then sought to compile an orderly account. You could insert chronological 
account. And look, some people hear this and they get a little uncomfortable because that doesn't sound like divine inspiration. That, that sounds like research, right? But again, and I think there's a, mis, a, a misconception here, that the notion that God put his people in a trance, this is that psilocybin-induced thing that people, you know, some people have. Um, the notion that God put his people in a trance and then made their hands start writing is a false notion. That, that's not what we mean when we say God inspired. You know, John MacArthur, the, the Baptist preacher, said the process of inspiration never bypasses or overrides the personalities, vocabularies, or styles of the human authors of Scripture. And then if you don't trust a Baptist, here's a Presbyterian scholar, B.B. Warfield. He said, the Scriptures are a joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point, working harmoniously together to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, every word, every particular. In other words, that's why all four Gospels contain a lot of the same information, but all have kind of slightly different points of view on that information. Different flavors. You know, Matthew was very Jewish, and so his gospel, God-inspired gospel, is very Jewish. Mark, we know that is, that's Peter's eyewitness account that Mark is recording, and so it sounds very Peter-like, very just action. Let's go. Um, John, much more philosophical, emotional, and so God used that to describe, you know, an angle of what he's like. And here we see Luke his personality, so it seems, to be very methodical. I mean, almost to the point of OCD, <laughs> investigative journalism. And that's what God used to record his historic and inspired word. Okay? And, and then notice verse 3, Luke tells us as we get going, like, who, who is the audience? Who is he writing this for? He calls this person most excellent Theophilus. And so scholars have had this friendly debate over whether Theophilus was a real person or just kind of a metaphor because the Greek word Theophilus literally means beloved of God. And so some have argued that um, Luke's, Luke's really saying Theophilus so that we can say, look, hey, if, if, if you're loved by God or if you're in Christ, then this is for you. Um, if you have questions, if you have doubts, and, but you, you know the gospel message, then Luke is for you. But then, and I do think that's how we read it today, but then if you notice, the, just for context, that title, Most Excellent, like was a real title of a ranking officials in the Roman Empire, which means though this is now to all believers, um, in all likelihood Theophilus was a real person who had been taught the gospel, but was unsure of some things, maybe he had some questions. And so Luke then reveals uh, the purpose of him, his writing, this insane, historical, historically accurate account with such painstaking research. Verse 4, he says, Look, I'm writing this under divine inspiration so that you, Theophilus, and so that you, doubting Christian, so that you, Westminster, may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so Luke wants us to see that all of this is real. Okay? Like, like forgiveness and joy and peace in Christ is real. It's, it's, it's very real, but that also means that hell and sin are also real. And so there's a, it's a very sobering account. 
And, and now we know throughout Scripture that it's not wrong to doubt. Um, you know, God has very tender words to those who doubt. You know, that may be even be a part of a vibrant faith is to like have these, to engage these thoughts and intellectual, like what's going on here? Um, and yet at the same time, God tells us that we can be certain of our identity in Christ. And, and so this morning as we kick off Luke, I, I just want to spend the rest of our time unpacking just verse 4, if that's all right. Um, and so it's going to be a little more apologetic, um, but this is so important as we establish the certainty of God's word, of what we're going to be walking through for the next bit. And so that's our only point this morning is this, we can be certain. You can be certain in the gospel. You can be certain. Well, how so? Well, first, um, it's like we always forget this. You have to remember that, that part of, um, that there's an element of faith <laughs> to walking by faith, right? Which means there's a part of receiving and understanding and, and trusting the gospel that's supernatural. Which means that, that we could have the most airtight historical arguments about the trustworthiness of what Jesus said, of like he rose from the, rose from the grave for you, of what he said and did, and yet people would still reject it. Well, we've got to see that. You know, I mean, there, today there are still people who think the earth is flat, right? Like really think that, right? It doesn't matter. You could give the most obvious, clear evidence, and that doesn't mean people will believe it. And so for those who say, show me the evidence, show me the data that you can trust the Bible, and I'll believe. Well, to that, no, not necessarily. Because at the end of the day, we forget that, that God gives the gift of faith. The reality that, that you believe right now is a miracle. That God has come into your dead heart and breathed faith, breathed life into you. Like, that is a miracle. So God gives the gift of faith, enabling us to see the data and interpret it accurately. You know, as Paul said, I mean, just really just decades after Jesus died, Paul wrote, for the word of the cross or the gospel is folly. It's just, it's dumb, it's weird, it's, it's folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so when God gives the gift of faith, something happens. And, and these words that maybe you've read for decades in the Bible, or maybe your grandmother would read it to you, all of a sudden explode in your heart and the scales fall off of your eyes and you see for the first time the beauty of Jesus. Oh, this is why people die for this message. This is why this message has literally turned the world upside down, the beauty of the gospel. And, and you're like, like, this is what the hymn writers were writing about, all these words that I didn't understand before. That amazing love, how can, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And if you were raised with an Arminian background, that was the moment when, you know, quote, you decided to follow Jesus, right? But if you were raised in a Reformed background, that was the moment when God saved you, okay? And, and, and if, like, conversion happened, and at that moment, God pulled you out of the, the perishing pit and placed you on the pathway of faith following the Jesus way. So by faith, we can have certainty in the gospel message. And yet at the same time, it's not a blind faith. No, faith in Christ is, is very, very reasonable. And here's what I mean. So just like in a court of law, you know, for, for things to be validated as something that happened in history, 
you need authoritative documents, and then you need eyewitness accounts. And if the authoritative documents and the eyewitness accounts line up, then you could say, okay, that, that happened. Which begs the question, who wrote the Gospels? Who authored these authoritative documents? And look, if you or your kids take a Bible class at a state university, more than likely you will hear something like, um, well, we don't, we don't know who wrote the Gospels. We, we don't know. Because the earliest copies of the Gospels were anonymous. They didn't have that title at the top of the page attached. So, so we, we don't know. And, and then you'll hear, possibly, and, and this is where that kind of, in some ways, a Marxist, if you want to even call it a critical theory angle, can come in in the academy. Possibly, at some point in history, those who had power got together, and they were probably in a dark room, and somebody was smoking a cigar or something. They, they, they got together, and they said, how can we exert more power over these poor peasants? And they said, well, well, what if we put this Bible together? And we say that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the authors of the gospel, and we make them believe it, and we can be the leaders of the church. We can have power over them. Okay? Um, of course, there's a problem with that because if you actually read the Bible, you find that it has nothing to do with having power over people, right? The gospel is about giving power away. But no disrespect to someone who gives their life to scholarship because we probably need that. But this is how higher education can work. It's all about novel ideas, right? You find something new or maybe, maybe some remote possibility that's new, and so you spend the rest of your life working on it. Um, well, this is one of those theories about the whole, like, anonymous thing. Because here's the reality. There is, there is zero proof, like zero proof that the earliest gospel manuscripts were anonymous or that at some point in history a nefarious group of power players changed it. No, like, those are the types of theories that you're left with when you reject the possibility of the supernatural. You reject the possibility that the resurrection happened because without the resurrection, how do you possibly explain the explosion of the church? And so to bring us back, back to reality, um, scholar Michael Kruger says, all, listen to that, all of the earliest manuscripts of the Gospels, as far back as we can go, have the same titles as they do now. And so that theory that, well, the first gospel circulated with no title, that is a theory. There's zero evidence that that's actually real. Um, and then he adds, and don't miss how remarkable this is. He says, if the gospels ever did circulate anonymously or with different names attached to them at the beginning, he says, then how in the world did every single manuscript discovered all over the Middle East and Asia all of a sudden agree about the authors without exception. I mean, could it be that Matthew and Mark and John actually were the authors? Authoritative eyewitness testimony? Which brings us then to Luke, which by the way, Luke is like the easiest of all of them. Because you know how sometimes bands will release double albums? Y'all remember when the Beatles released the White Album? It's like, you know, had two sides to it. Um, or if you're into hard rock, it's Smashing Pumpkins, right? That, remember that Melancholy and Infinite Sadness album? Or for those of you who love country, it's Garth Brooks, Double Live. Y'all remember that call in Baton Rouge? Oh, that's so good. Um, 
Well, in the same way, think of, in the, the Bible, think of Luke and Acts as a double album. Like, it was released at the same time. It was given to the people at the same time. It, it's a single literary production, which means, um, well, in Acts, there's this really interesting moment in chapter 16 when all of a sudden, whoever wrote Luke also wrote Acts, when all of a sudden the author stops talking about, and Paul did this, and Paul went there, and the author starts saying, and we did this, and we went there. So whoever is, is, is writing it was a travel companion of Paul, and yet as you read Paul's letters, you learn that this physician named Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and that Luke was even the last person to visit Paul before he died. Again, can we say like obsessive investigative journalism? Like he's there. So Luke is obviously the author, and since Luke and Acts were written together, that affects the dating, which skeptics will argue that most of the Gospels, we don't, everything's written in the second century long after the fact of Jesus. But if Luke wrote this, that would put the dating of the Gospel really in the mid-60s, mid to late 60s, only 30 to 40 years after the ministry of Jesus. And, and now, like, of course, we may hear that and we say, that's a long time. Some of us aren't even that old, right? Or, or what if the eyewitnesses' memories got a little foggy? You know, what if it's kind of like some of our friends, those outdoorsmen who, you know, that two-pound bass that they call over time turns into a 10-pound <laughs> bass. Couldn't even get it in the boat. It's so big. Um, well, two rebuttals to that. One, 30 to 40 years really isn't that long as far as historians are concerned. Did you know that the official biography of James Madison, autobiography of James Madison, was published 50 to 60 years after much of its key events? And yet no one doubts that, oh yeah, that is a valid eyewitness authoritative account of the founding fathers. And so 30 to 40 years is well within the lifetime of a credible eyewitness testimony. And then to that foggy memory concern, because sometimes our memories do get hazy, right? And sometimes this little thing, that little fish, turns into a whale over time. Well, because of the Holocaust, you know, we've gotten the opportunity to see what happens to people's memories who have been taken to the edge of humanity. And so when people experience something that traumatic and that different, um, we find that it's like wet semen in the brain. Like, this is why people go to counseling, and this is why people experience PTSD. Like, it, it's, it's just cement in the brain, wet cement stamped in there. And so survivors of the Holocaust, long after the fact, could recount in vivid detail things that even the video cameras missed in some of those concentration camps. Well, in the same way, if you see something not just unique, but mind-blowingly unique, something like, a man raising a little girl from the dead. <laughs> I think you remember that. Like a, a man turning water into wine, multiplying bread and fish, you know, walking on water or rising again. It's like wet cement stamped in your brain. You don't forget it. You just don't forget it. All right. Another reason we can be certain of Luke and the Gospels is because of a lot of little Easter eggs inside of them, they are self-authenticating, like the people's names. You know, the names that we find in there written were literally the, the names that were popular in the first century, not second century or third century, but the first century Palestine. 
It's like if you were making up the gospel story written centuries after the fact, how could you possibly perfectly nail the most popular names during that time of Jesus' time? And then there's vocabulary. Uh, skeptics argued that the gospels, they weren't written in Palestine. They were written far off in other places. And, and so um, it would be akin to, you know, you or I writing a story pretending that we're in England, but we're writing it here from Mississippi. But yet, y'all probably know that in England, they call things, they have different vocabulary in England than we do here. You know, the, the whole like, the trunk of your car, they call the boot. Uh, the, the hood of their car, they call the bonnet. There are these little things that like, if we were to go over there and call it, yeah, open the trunk of the car, and we did this and that, and they would, somebody would say, dude, you definitely were not in England, because they don't even call it that there. Well, it's the same way. It's, it's language that is only found in the ancient Near East, only in Palestine. And so if you read the Gospels, you also see that whoever wrote it had an intimate knowledge of the topography. And so when they say that, you know, they went down to a city or up to a city, they're not talking about directionally. They're talking about elevation gain or loss as people who had walked those roads and experienced the elevation gain or, or loss. And then there's something as simple as botanical terms you know, there's this really deep, deep, neat detail that you know, even our kids learn as a child. Like the song about Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, right? Like there's this detail about a specific tree, sycamore. But what's interesting is, is that particular tree didn't grow in the regions that the skeptics think that the Bible was, was written uh, no, in fact, there's only one very small area that had natural pollinators for this tree. And it just so happened to be, guess where? Jericho, Zacchaeus' hometown. And see, that, I mean, that's the detail that an eyewitness would have given because Jericho was known, it's, it's like the, the delta is, we're known for like what, blues and farmland, right? Um, it, it would be like, all right, I'm going to write a story about the delta and not even mention the blues, like, if you read that story, you would be like, dude, have you even been to the Delta? Um, well, that's it. Because in Jericho, these sycamore trees were a big deal because they didn't grow everywhere. They just grew in that little region. And so that's something that an eyewitness would mention. And somebody very familiar with the region, like, yeah, he climbed up in a, a sycamore tree. And so, look, there's so many other Easter eggs that scream to the authenticity and, uh, of eyewitness testimony but I want to end with just one final theory that skeptic scholars throw out. And this is kind of their, this is their end game right here. They say, okay, all right, obviously we have the Gospels today in our Bibles. And okay, maybe they were written by eyewitness uh, accounts, eyewitness testimonies. And maybe they were written in the first century. We'll give you all that. But how do we know that what we have is what was actually originally written? And they'll say things like, the Bible is hopelessly corrupted to the point that, that not only can it not be trusted, but we don't even know what Jesus said. And like this, this one line of thinking is maybe the single, the single biggest reason, at least intellectually, people have doubts and people leave the church and leave the faith. It's because of this. And so, and so Bart Ehrman is uh, single-handedly responsible for casting the most doubt in people's minds about the certainty of Scripture. And, and what's interesting, and this is harkening back to that point on faith, what's interesting is Bart Ehrman's mentor was this uh, famous Bible scholar named Bruce Metzger. 
And, and Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman had the exact same data, the, all the exact same manuscripts, and it strengthened Bruce Metzger's faith. Like, he was like, this is awesome. But it, it hardened Bart Ehrman's faith. So it's, it's interesting about the, the faith element here. But, but back to Bart, part of his spill is, in all of the early manuscripts that we find in archaeological digs, in the fragments that we discover that, you know, of, of biblical text, he says there are between 200,000 and 400,000 variants or, or differences in, in all the different manuscripts. And so his question is, well, well, which difference is the right difference? Which message is the right message? And so the question becomes that he would pose, look, if God wanted us to have his word, as we think he does, then why all the differences? Like, can't God do better than that? And, and look, you can hear that for the first time, and it rock you. I mean, it did me. Um, because, you know, I, I, growing up, I thought God's word was much cleaner than that. It's like, straight shot, all a King James Version from the beginning, right? Um, but let me dispel this in just four quick ways, and I hope this is encouraging to your faith, and as we march forward in Luke, we can, like, when we read about Jesus, you know, turning, uh, like, multiplying bread and fish, that we believe that this, this happened. Four, four quick ways. First, we learn in Galatians that in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to redeem his people. Which meant it, it couldn't have waited any longer. And apparently the fullness of time for God meant before laptop computers or even before the printing press. Which meant that in God's good providence, he saw that the gospel message obviously would have to be, for it to go out, would have to be written down by hand. And so if your church back then wanted a copy of Luke to study, then that meant that you had to copy it down by hand. Or, you know, hire a professional scribe to do it for you. And then if the church down the street or down the, the next town over wanted a copy of it, then they would take your copy of the copy, and then they would copy it. And so it's copies of copies of copies, and that's how the word spread. Well, you know, think about it. Have, y'all, have any of y'all sent, like, you know, the, auto, the autocorrect that's on your text messaging, you know? Have any of y'all sent, like, the worst text message to a friend because autocorrect messed you up? Um, I have. <laughs> um, with autocorrect and spell check, like I still make spelling mistakes. So like in this sermon document that I put together this week, at the end after I had like, it was like perfect. Uh, I counted and I still had like 40 something spelling <laughs> mistakes uh, just in this document. All right. Um, which leads then to the second thing. This ties together. The vast, vast number of these variants, these differences that cast so much doubt in people's minds are, are just that. It's just misspellings. Simple misspellings. You get the I before the E, the E after the I. It's just, you just, sometimes you get confused. Or instead of saying Jesus Christ, one scribe might put Christ Jesus or, you know, Jesus the Christ. Well, that's, that's like, depending on how many manuscripts, that could be tons of differences right there, just in that small one. And so every single time something like that happened, it was considered a difference. Which brings us to the third kind of way of processing through this. The reason the number of differences is so high isn't because the ancient manuscripts were so bad. No, it's because we have so many early Bible manuscripts, like a ton of them, uh, almost 6,000 and, and, and compare that to something else that was written during this time period, something very famous, uh, Tacitus's History of Rome, 
We only have 33 manuscripts of that. 33. And then or Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, there are only 10 in existence. Like only 10. And so a large reason why there's so many differences is because there are a ton of, of Scripture manuscripts, which even that, that reality alone tells us the impact and the reach that the gospel had in the ancient world. If you think about it, only 10 copies of Caesar's wars, that's all we can find. And yet, we have almost 6,000 manuscripts about another king, King Jesus. And so the, the message was obviously all over the place. And then fourth and finally, and this is probably one of the most encouraging realities when doubts pop up in my mind. I hope it is for you too. And this tackles the question of, what about God inspiring his word and protecting the transmission of his word to today um, so that we can have the gospel message? Well, Ehrman's claim is really a bit of a smokescreen um, because when asked, okay, Bart, out of all the differences that there are, thousands, hundreds of thousands of different, out of all the differences, is there a single one that changes or calls into question any foundational doctrine or teaching of Jesus? Is there any, any of these differences that would make the church today, the message that is the gospel, would it change it? Are we, do, are we preaching the wrong gospel? And do you know what he says? And this is the most ardent skeptic there is. He says, no. No. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I, I, thought, I thought that the Bible's hopelessly corrupt and we couldn't possibly know what it says. He says, no, nothing changes. In other words, every, all of these differences are like, my, so minor. And so I don't know about you, but to me, that's even more amazing than God giving us a perfect printing press copy of his word. I mean, instead of causing us to doubt, this really should lead us to worship because despite the possibility of human spelling errors, grammatical errors, and despite scribal mistakes, God has perfectly preserved the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and it is the same exact message that was from the very, very, very beginning. And that is something that we can be certain about. And that's good news, isn't it? So as we kick off Luke, um, again, I know this is a little different this morning, we just got to start with the reality that, look, you're going to hear a lot of stuff, like a ton of stuff. And most all of that comes from 18th century liberalism. Um, well, it's, a lot of time has passed since the 18th century, right? And uh, a lot of archaeological finds have been found. And a lot of the things that we used to think is just people thought, oh, that's dumb. No, it's actually, it's true. You know, as we found uh, this past Wednesday, you know that for the longest time, there was a group of people that the Old Testament mentions called the Hittites. <laughs> like, for the longest time, people thought the Bible was making that up. And yet, it wasn't until, like, the early 1900s that we find, no, there actually was a, a civilization. There was a huge civilization called the Hittites. Um, and so, we're constantly finding things that confirm the authenticity and the certainty of the Bible. And if that's the case then we can so, so, so trust the gospel message, right? Well, let me pray for us. Father, there are and can be little mosquitoes of doubt that buzz around in our minds, um, that buzz around in our lives. And so, Lord, this time as we go through Luke, we ask, please, may your spirit and your word serve as a, as a Spartan defense against those mosquitoes. 
kill them, kick them away, and leave us with certainty in your good promises and in our good and beautiful Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.